Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for God is good, and God's steadfast love endures forever. Let us worship the Lord our God. What shall I return to the Lord for all God's bounty to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will offer to you a thanksgiving sacrifice and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all God's people. In the chorus of the house of the Lord, in your midst. O Lord, your steadfast love never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. How great is your faithfulness. O faithful God, you are good to those who wait for you, to the soul that seeks you. 
May each of us claim your faithfulness to us and then go and act in the world on your behalf to be your faithful disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace and peace to you and welcome to the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those of us gathered here in the sanctuary as well as everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to gather in the house of the Lord, and because it is in Christ's name that we have gathered, our word of welcome is one that is extended with absolutely no qualifying adjectives whatsoever attached to it. All are welcome in Christ's house, so all are welcome here at First Church. We do ask everyone, members and guests alike, if you would kindly sign the friendship pad, which you'll find on your pew. If you will sign it and send it down and back again, we will have the advantage of each other's names. And we'd also be delighted if everyone would join us for a time of fellowship at the conclusion of this service in Old Buttonwood Hall, which is just out this door to my right and down a very short ramp. There you will find that our deacons have prepared some light refreshments, but most importantly, the opportunity to engage one, with one another deeply in our common life together. It, to aid in the common life together, I have a few announcements from the announcements portion of your bulletin for your particular attention this week. One is a volunteer opportunity with Habitat for Humanity. This is a unique opportunity. They are opening a new restore on Allegheny Avenue, and this week they need volunteers to help with setup. You'll see everything in the bulletin you need to participate in that. And likewise, you will see an announcement about the Urban Tree Connection, of which we are a supporting congregation. There is an education series upcoming, and you'll see information about how to RSVP for that in your bulletin as well. One note, our 20s and 30s group are having their brunch on a different Sunday this month than normal. It will actually be Sunday the 25th. So please do, young adults, 20s and 30s, plan to gather for brunch after worship next Sunday and go together and enjoy a meal. At this point in our service, I call on Bill Leonard with our Moment for History. This year, the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia is celebrating its 325th anniversary. In 1698, this church was founded. Now today, I'm going to be speaking not about the early ministers or the congregation or the role of the church in the larger Presbyterian church in the United States. I'm going to be talking about what was happening in the world in Philadelphia and on this continent at that time. Because in the spirit of Jesus' command to his disciples to go forth to all peoples, this church has always existed in the context of its community, not in isolation. From its beginning, it has provided Christian witness in the context of local, national, global, and personal concerns. Now, in Philadelphia, in 1698, Philadelphia was a city that was founded in 1682. So at the time our church was founded, 16 years later, it was still a relatively new city, and it was a small place. It was founded by William Penn as a place of religious freedom. So of its 2,500 people, many would have been of many different religions. Also, many and most people would have been younger, and most would have been immigrants. 
North America in 1698, of course, was not an independent country in any way. The continent was claimed by British, French, and Spanish uh, rulers, most of the East Coast being British, the middle by the French, and the west of the Mississippi, generally the Spanish. In some ways, when you think about the history of immigration to this country, the founding of First Church in 1698 was not that far removed from the arrival in Plymouth, Massachusetts, of the Mayflower, the ship that brought earlier Protestant dissenters to North America in 1620. Interestingly, in 1698, at the time of our founding, there was one surviving passenger of the Mayflower still alive. Also in North America, we think of historic Williamsburg as being this very early capital of Virginia. First church was founded one year before Williamsburg. Now, because Philadelphians and Pennsylvanians were British subjects, necessarily everything that was happening in Britain and in Europe, in, including all of the political and real religious turmoil in Britain in the early 17th century, and in the early years after our founding, Britain's involvement with almost every other power in Europe of a, the War of the Spanish Succession that lasted from 1701 to 1715, those conflicts spilled over into North America. Interestingly, because of its close connection to Europe, some of the rulers of that time, the king at the time, the king of Britain, was William III, who ruled with his wife Mary. Queen Anne came to the throne in 1702. The French king at that time was Louis XIV, and the Russian czar was Peter the Great. Things were happening beyond the political and the military scene. There was a lot going on in the fields of science and music. Scientist Isaac Newton would have been 55 in 1698, and of course was world famous for his work in establishing the laws of motion and gravitation. And music has always been a very important part of our life here at First Church. Composers Johann Sebastian Bach and George Frederick Handel, whose music, actually Bach's music we heard this morning for the prelude, both would have been 13 years old when this church was founded. So my observation and conclusion is in many ways, the more things that have changed have stayed the same. The unresolved problems we face today, war, threats of war, religious and political violence, immigration, were many of the same challenges faced by our predecessors at the time First Presbyterian Church was founded in 1698. And through all of these times, we can be pleased that the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia has been a constant witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you. We say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, 
God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Therefore, let us come to God in prayer and confession for the forgiveness of our sins, using the prayer of confession in our bulletin. Eternal God, creator of the winds and rains, sun and moon, the earth and all that is in it, too often we utter your praises without pausing to consider what it is we sing. Too often our words bear no evidence that we bear the imprint of your word. Too often we mumble our joy, suppress our sorrow, and live as though you do not matter. Yet you alone are God. You alone offer us peace and joy. Forgive us, we pray, when we substitute lesser idols for the freedom and discipleship you offer us. Break through into our hearts and lives and minds and transform us by your power. Through Jesus Christ, we pray. Let us pray silently. we have confessed our sins God who is faithful and just promises to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness whether it be a sin we have carried with us for years or recent sin of negligence and short-sightedness let us together claim the Lord's mercy and live as God's truly forgiven disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. scripture lesson is taken from the book of Exodus. The Israelites have been freed from the hands of the Egyptians and have been on the move. On the third new month, they had journeyed from Rephidim 
entered the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the Israelites, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the Israelites. So Moses came, summoned the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. The people all answered as one, Everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Here ends the first reading. The epistle lesson is taken from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us in that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. Here ends the second reading. Thanks be to God. Our final reading is taken from the Psalter, and <clears throat> the Psalms are poetry. They are 
meant to be sung. And as much as I love the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible, it just doesn't sing when it comes to poetry. So I will be reading this morning's psalm in the King James Version. Listen for the word of God as it comes to us from Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. I like to sing. I fancy I was once good at it, but I have learned in the years that I haven't stretched my voice that unless you exercise it, the voice can become less flexible and its range diminishes, which is why, unless I forget to turn off my microphone, you aren't going to be hearing any solos from me, at least not intentionally. And this is probably a good thing because the choir can tell you that since I'm generally thinking about what I'm going to be doing next in worship, I have a bad habit of singing a different verse of the hymn than everybody else. Nonetheless, I like to sing, which is why it pains me to say what I'm going to say next. Some people just can't sing. Lest you feel you are hearing a word of judgment in that phrase, bear with me. I am not referring to the quality of one's voice, nor am I referring to whether or not said voice is capable of remaining in tune. I make no reference to the ability to count or even to match pitch. What I mean is that some people truly, deeply cannot sing. The circumstances of life 
rob them of their song. Their voices have been stifled by people who think that they should not sing. Perhaps their song has been silenced for so long that even though the pipes are good, the breath support is there, they no longer believe they can sing. Or perhaps they cannot sing because their hearts are broken. What then? Well, this may seem a bit simplistic, but the mission of the church is to sing for those who cannot. What I mean by this is that we who sing the songs of faith do so for those who are, for whatever reason, unable to sing. That's basically the point of this message. We who are able sing for those who are unable. There's something extraordinarily elemental about singing. And I do know there are some folks, perhaps some even in the sanctuary, who don't particularly like to sing. Now, I've already established I'm not one of them. I'm unabashedly a church music junkie, and in this congregation, I am not alone in that fact. Singing as an act of praise to God is as tactile and tangible an expression of faith and thanksgiving for creation as we may offer. Now think of it. The whole body becomes an instrument engaged in giving witness to God's goodness. Perhaps that is why some folks are bashful about singing. It is decidedly, avowedly personal. No one's voice is your voice, be it good, bad, or indifferent. No one can sing praise to God in the way that you can sing praise to God. In this, the human voice differs, correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, from all other instruments. All other instruments allow for what is offered to be mimicked or replicated. Clearly, Andrew plays with much more skill and, dare I say, style, but if I were to press a key on the organ that Andrew had previously pressed, the sound would be more or less identical. But when we sing, when we sing, it is our own voice, and it is thrilling in God's ears. We are made for praising God. That is part of our purpose. To be sure, there is some variety in the reasons the Bible gives for God's creation of humanity, but the Bible steadily hints that our function is to make witness to God's goodness. And that's what praise is. In the shorter catechism of the Westminster Standards, the question is asked, what is the chief end of humankind? Isn't that a question that just gets to the heart of who we are? What is the whole reason we're here? And the answer is given, to glorify God and enjoy God forever. Our chief function is to glorify God. And God delights 
in our praise. Do you think that God delights in what brings us joy? That God wants our happiness and our well-being? So when we sing praise, we give voice to the goodness of creation and our place in it. It is good to give praise. It is good to sing. The Psalter, from which we read today, I've already noted, is a hymnal of ancient Israel, a songbook and a prayer book for worship. Many of the songs were written in times of oppression, when the people of Israel had no temple in which to worship where all they could do was to sit down by the waters of Babylon, where they were enslaved, and weep. Relegated to lesser status, far from home, unsure of their future, much of the Psalter comes from a place of deep hurt and disappointment. It may seem strange to note this in a sermon entitled, Sing to the Lord with Cheerful Voice, but our singing gives voice to our weeping as well. The Psalter, that hymn of the ancient Israelite, is full of pathos. Yes, the words of the 100th Psalm are a robust expression of joy, but in the very same hymnal, we find profound words of lament. And this is as it should be, because no singing to God is complete unless it is singing from our whole selves in praise, in lament, honestly and candidly. God delights in the sharing of ourselves, our whole selves, with God. Now, the 100th Psalm contains within it an unequivocal declaration that the Lord is God. And if the Lord is God then all other pretenders to the title fall away. If God is God and not anyone else, then all the circumstances of our lives necessarily take place within the providence of God. And if all of life takes place within the providence of God, meaning where God has provided God's very own self for us as a means of grace, then we live our lives with a different narrative. We live our lives in a different story. We live knowing that we are not at the mercy of those who would wish us the worst ill, but only ever at the mercy of the one who wishes us peace and love and joy. Moreover, we are not at the mercy of our own worst moments, because if God is God and no other, then redemption also falls within God's purview. And therefore, our lives may be lived free of the crippling fear of perfection. Those who have lingered in churches very long at all, know well the story of the Psalter. But for those for whom these poetic voices may be new, remember that they are comprised by and large as poetry written in the context of alienation, of disintegration, of suffering. 
Many are sung in the context of failure. Not every word of them, to be sure, but suffused throughout the book is the notion that failure to understand that God is God deprives one of a lifetime of comfort and assurance. And it was a lesson that was honestly gotten. Israel, failing to trust in Yahweh, made one disastrous alliance after another and then pitted their so-called allies against one another. It was demonstrably bad foreign policy with demonstrably bad results. Moreover, more importantly, it was a repudiation who, of who they themselves believed they were to be offered the privilege of being God's blessing in the world, as our Genesis text last week noted, when God declared to Abram and Sarai that their offspring would be more numerous than the sand and the stars, God's people turned away from God and sought instead to trust in their own machinations, their own wits, and their own strength. And once this treacherous path was undertaken, it just became harder and harder to remember that God is God. But a word of hope springs forth. If God is God and not any other, then even their own worst moments are open to redemption. They are offered repair. They are reminded that they exist within the grace of God, which is as profound a call to worship as we may find. Which is why, despite the history of the Psalter as being written mostly during the Babylonian captivity, this is a psalm filled with joy. This is a psalm for worship. Old Testament scholar James May wrote this, the worship the psalm initiates is joyful. All who study Psalm 100 note the exuberance, enthusiasm, and mirth that its language represents and evokes, and they yearn for such qualities in their own worship. The call for joy is not hype. It is based on the God to whom the psalm declares its praise. The God who is present is the shepherd of God's people. The Lord is Savior. The situation of worship is evangelical. The congregation moves into the presence of the one who is for us. Therefore, it is a song that must be sung. And it is God who opens our voices in hope and in love. For those who are too broken-hearted to sing, we sing for them. For those who have been told to keep silence, that seems particularly relevant this week, we sing for them. The world over, there are those whose political environment is such that to gather and praise in a public place, to sing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs, to quote Paul, is an impossibility. We sing for them. We sing because they cannot, because the body of Christ understands that when the mouth is silenced in one place, 
it is opened in another. And if perhaps some of you here this morning have been in this situation for whom the experience of faith is not a blessing or a gift, but rather one of pain and sorrow, then we sing for you. And we will sing for you for as long as it takes for you to recover your voice and for your song to become your own. No matter how long it takes. I'd like to tell you about my Uncle Tony, whose name I bear as my middle name. I've never forgotten his funeral. My great-grandfather, I was told, was a man of rather dogmatic faith whose faith allowed no uncertainty, no room for doubt, no freedom whatsoever to think outside certain parameters. He was a member of a tiny congregation in North Carolina, outside of which he believed there was no salvation. So certain was he of this conviction that he sold his business, a successful business in Georgia, and moved his family to rural North Carolina to become a farmer. It turns out, by, how, by the way, however, that he was a successful businessman by all accounts, but a lousy farmer. And so in a life that seems at moments to have been lifted straight out of Barbara Kingsolver's novel, The Poisonwood Bible, his family suffered because of his beliefs. His children grew up on a steady diet of harsh pietism, marked out by hard words. There were six children, three of them, half of them, rejected all faith because of their upbringing. My uncle was in that half. If that was church, he wanted nothing more to do of it. But the day he walked out of his house, was the last day he stepped foot in a church. He would not darken the doors of a house of worship for many, many years. Now it happened that his wife began attending the Methodist church down the street from where they lived, and she finally grew tired of dragging their children to church by herself, so she issued an order. Sit still and be quiet. You don't have to agree with the preacher, she said. You don't have to believe one single word. You don't even have to listen. But you do have to sit there, because I'm not going to do this on my own anymore. My Uncle Tony eventually became friends with this Methodist pastor, and that, that is a very streamlined version of a story that took more than 30 years to unfold. But at the time of his death, he asked that the hymn, It is well with my soul, should be sung at his funeral. And so when we gathered there to give thanks to God for his life, we sang that hymn for all who could not. God wants our praises because God wants our whole selves, every bit of us. We do not sing because God needs us to. We do not sing because we want to change God. Much like with prayer, we do not change God. We change ourselves. Our singing changes us. It orients us in the world toward God, toward a life of joy and praise and thanksgiving. Music is in worship is the extension of our prayers, whether it is the words we sing in the hymns or the 
melodies that make their way heavenward as a form of prayer. And like prayer, they change us. So finally, we sing because we need to sing. It is for what we are made. And we sing because we have the responsibility for those who cannot. We sing because we can. So let us sing to the Lord with a cheerful voice. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. respond to the reading and proclamation of God's word is through the church's creeds and confessions. The Apostles' Creed was written sometime during the fifth century. Let us say what we believe using the words of the ancient creed. 
I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He ascended. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Christian life is marked by the offering of oneself to God. In worship, God presents us with the costly self-offering of Jesus Christ, who has claimed us and set us free. In response to God's love in Christ, we therefore offer our lives our gifts, our abilities, and our material goods for Christ's service. Let us return to God the offerings of our lives and the gifts of the earth.
Lord God, please accept our offerings given as a response to your gospel today. May they be used to further the work of our church and for the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us pray. For ourselves and our neighbors, we pray and give you thanks. Thank you, God, for the times you have said no. They have helped us depend on you so much more. Thank you, God, for the doors you have closed. They have prevented us from going where you would rather not have us go. Thank you, Lord, for the alone times in our lives. Those times have forced us to lean in closer to you. Thank you, God, for the uncertainties we've experienced. They have deepened our trust in you. Thank you, God, for the tears we have shed. They have kept our hearts soft and moldable. Thank you, God, for the times we haven't been able to control our circumstances. They have reminded us that you are sovereign and on the throne and that you reign in loving power over all your creation. And thank you, Lord, not only for our eternal salvation, but for the salvation you afford every day of our lives as you save us from ourselves our foolishness, our own limited insights, and our frailties in light of your power and strength. Now for the world, we pray. We pray for those who have suffered debilitating losses this past week from storms, floods, and tornadoes. Relieve their suffering and restore their lives to some sort of normalcy again. We pray for those suffering from wars, especially we turn to Ukraine. Bless their courage and resourcefulness and make countries such as the United States and throughout Europe rally together to help protect Ukraine's people from tyrants and usurpers. Have mercy, O oh God. We pray for our climate, Lord. May the extremes in temperature and other natural catastrophes remind us that it is not too late for us to make climate change a priority in what we do and how we order our everyday lives. 
Forgive us for contributing knowingly and unknowingly to the desecration of our planet. Finally, O oh God, our Creator, your will for us and for all your people is health and salvation. Therefore, we pray for all those who are in need of healing. For all who are disabled by injury or illness, confusion or pain, we pray for your merciful hand to heal them. For all about to undergo surgery or other difficult treatment, we pray that you will sustain them, bless and heal them. For all who cannot sleep, we pray for restoration of restful sleep. And finally, for all whose increasing years bring weariness, give us strength, hope, and a measure of your grace through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now hear us, Lord, as we pray together the prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
now go out with a song in a heart, but go out particularly with your song in your heart and know that when you sing it, it is thrilling in God's ears. And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.